welcome to the Second Renaissance podcast, where we decode the rebirth of human creativity in a technology-driven world. I'm Anders Sommenilsen, global futurist, author, and the co-creator of the Adobe CQ, the IQ test for your creative leadership, and your host for the Second Renaissance. Matt Yule, welcome up to... God's country. Up to God's country. Thanks for having me. It was a bloody nice drive up here. It's not a bad drive, is it? Yeah. Yeah. You've you just come up from from Sydney, Balmain. So it took a what just under an hour. Yeah. Past Narrabeen Lakes, along the beaches, the bends. Yeah. Bloody beautiful. Yeah. I'll and come up here anytime, and then a good coffee on arrival. Yeah, exactly. We Very even happy with we that. even have that these days. <laughs> so welcome to where the wildlings live. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and welcome to our little, you know, retail store concept. Uh, for those of you who listen to and watch the second Renaissance, this is sort of the speak easy studio, the think studio, but that way we Mm. actually have the ephemera showroom and retail store, which is of course Mm. my wife's concept. Yes. Swimwear, resort wear, beautiful looking stuff. Yeah. Yeah, Definitely get my wife to check it out. Yeah. Thanks for the plug. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And as we've sort of gone through this morning and shared a piccolo and a a strong flat white three quarter, very Melbourneian of us, um, we've also established that we actually have a a joint friend from many years ago. Yeah. So Hema Patel, who you used to work with. Yeah, I used to work. Ideaworks. Used to work with Hema, I mean, years and years ago. Um, Yeah. Ideaworks days in the Mossman office. Um, yeah, super talent. What yeah. A, what a woman. She's so a little little shout out, Hema Patel, Hema. when you watch this. Yeah. Let's have a drink. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. It's an, it's an official invite now. <laughs> so we're here to talk about all things creativity. Uh, obviously, you come from a creative profession, having worked previously at IdeaWorks. Yeah. Now at the general store as, yeah. as the CEO. Yeah. Uh, you and I have sort of reconnected both through the, I guess, the conference circuit, but also more recently at the entrepreneurs organization yeah. i'm curious now that you've pitched all these other cool things and <laughs> worthwhile brands um what do you guys do at the at the general store and uh how do you see the world of of retail given yeah. this pandemic aftershock that we're experiencing yeah. yeah so the i mean i i grew up as a strategy planner in ad agencies and i kind of noticed that it was like no matter what the client's problem was the answer was always an ad and I felt like that was just such a flawed model really so I wanted to create a business that was super multidisciplinary that could the answer might not be advertising it might be um, pricing strategy and technology or it might be store design and loyalty or so that's really the essence of the general store Um, rather than specialize by discipline we specialize by market sector, which is retail, and then offer all the services that that one market sector needs. So I think it's all about stitching together more interesting answers, basically. And when I've, when I've had a look on on the, and then by the way, these guys, you, I feel like you're underselling yourself here yeah. a bit because you guys keep taking out, you know, awards and being nominated for like the retail store concepts of the world mm. being you know, narrowly beaten by Karl Lagerfeld. No, no, not narrowly beaten. We beat Karl Lagerfeld. There you go. (laughs) Important little difference. Yeah. Yeah. I think our first year, we we started the business in 2012. I think in 2013, we won. um, Yeah. Best store design in the world. It's very hotly contested, as you can imagine. Um, Yeah. We sort of flew over to Paris for that. And um, 
yeah, beat Karl Lagerfeld and, and this amazing Puma flagship in Osaka, which I was pretty blown away to even be in the mix there. Yeah. Um, but um, yeah, it was interesting because I came out of advertising and I was so sort of keen to prove that the general store wasn't just another ad agency, that, that we were multidisciplinary. And then we won that store design um, award and then everyone just thought we were a store design agency and no one would give us advertising. So, so then I had to work really hard to kind of build the advertising and sort of creative yeah. side of the business. Um, but yeah, great, great award to win. But then I just read like just two weeks ago or something, we won, um, the best store design of the year in the Australian awards for, um, uh, a really cool concept with Rebel Sport at Parramatta, their, um, big kind of concept store out there. Yeah. Um, so that was pretty exciting to get that with our good friends over at Rebel. Yeah. yeah. Cool. So no, it's been good journey. Yeah. yeah. And I mean... And re retail is such a fascinating space. I mean, it was, it was fascinating because of digital disruption, digital transformation, even before the pandemic. But, you know, what, what are the sort of either short-term trends or mm. longer-term trends that you think the pandemic has sort of spawned for not just your retail clients, but, you know, retail more retail broadly? Generally. Well, it was an interesting year, 2020. Obviously, it was an interesting year. Um, I mean, retail by and large last year, by and large had a good year um retail um as a as a total was up about six percent in 2020 which is a in australia in australia or, yeah, in australia yeah, i mean yeah. it was diabolical in other regions but in australia up up about six percent um across the board um you know it was a very kind of liquid market last year i think 2.1 million people accessed their super you had rent reprieves we had job keeper i mean there was People were saving money on commuting and on travel. So there was like, there was money mm. in the market. Um, and I think it was particularly interesting for a couple of reasons. Like firstly, from a, a retail like exec level, the decision-making that was happening in 2020 was like off the charts, things that we'd never seen before, you know, obviously shutting stores and things like that. But in that time, um, the the level of sort of creativity I thought was interesting. You had these big retail execs who had sort of um silenced their their business they weren't getting the daily emails a lot of staff had been stood down there was sort of stores had been shut and all of a sudden these amazing brains had time to rethink about their businesses and what were they going to do on the other side and and i think some really exciting things will come of that and have come of that um so yeah i think it was sort of an interesting time to be on the inside of the retail sector some of the conversations that we're having are pretty kind of kind of interesting but you you go before that and a lot of the decision making was pretty small and iterative and then 2020 the decision making was was much bigger and much bolder and i think that'll be interesting going forward just the level of confidence people have around making those bigger decisions and how that'll carry through into 2021 and 2022 i think that will reshape mm -hmm. retail in an interesting way um, but yeah, in terms of really the key trends that came out of that, I think is really, I mean, if you look at the numbers, it's basically anything to do with the home, just, you know, boomed and anything yeah. to do. So, you know, furniture, DIY, um, DA applications currently are still through the roof record DA applications. So I think that's a good leading indicator to show there's another solid, like two or three years in sort of the, the housing boom in Australia for, I'm talking, you know, 
you know, um, housing prices will stay buoyant, but but also all those sort of um, related industries around retail will stay buoyant. For so we're talking, period. we're not, and we're not giving financial advice here, by the way. Yeah. But I'm I'm imagining right the the likes of you know JB Hi-Fi, the Harvey yeah, Normans of Norman. the world, yeah. and the Freedom Furniture. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, etc. Yeah. Et I was talking to the CEO of Freedom recently, and he he was saying it's like drinking from a faucet at the moment like there's so much opportunity out there and it's a case of trying to wrangle and position the business for that so yeah there's some really good tailwinds mm. out there sure. so what's what's happened like in not just in australia but around the world have people just sort of woken up now that we're not distracted by you know the holiday to to bali or mm. cancun or to mallorca you know yeah. is it just that we woke up and we go our house is ugly yeah. Or, you know, like the bathroom's yeah. moldy. Like, what, is that like just the wish to look after our own backyard and, and, and really kind of, you know, sort of having a bit of a transformational journey, but at home? Is that, is that what's playing out from a sort of consumer psychology perspective? Or what, what do you think? What are the drivers yeah. here from your perspective? I think with the home, um, people tend to have this kind of long list of jobs in the back of their mind. And then in sort of the current climate, people have, yeah, they're not traveling. Those other things that have been at the forefront of their mind have kind of come off the boil and those things have come forward. So that long list of jobs or the dreams of the second bathroom or the dreams of repainting the house or the dreams of doing the big renovation, I think they've just kind of swooshed forward as everything else has fallen away. I don't know about what you think about this, but I just think one of the happy side effects of COVID and there were many challenges but one of the happy side effects of COVID was this sort of you know we had space again like mental space for the first time in a long time and you know we were um, like for example I think that the number of dads doing drop-offs at school I've noticed is much higher than before COVID and I think a lot of dads are trying to protect that and hold on to it and I think there's sort of a bit of a reprioritization of what's important and home and family are kind of coming to the top. Have you noticed anything? Yeah. I mean, certainly, um, you know, we moved into a new air area, so I can't really compare or do a data Mm. set on time stamping pre and and post, but I would imagine, uh, and given the amount of dads I see both at, you know, I'm doing drop-offs today and I'm also doing pickups yeah. today. Um, <laughs> short work day. Um, and, uh, but the number of dads has, has, I imagine, exploded across Australia and around, around the world. Mm. So and I think that, you know, I think that's a, that's a real positive. Yeah. 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 And I think, you know, that more flexible work environment that we've got going on at the moment is, I think, very exciting for our community in terms of, um, giving, making it more possible for, for dads to engage more with the family and work more remotely and for mums to engage more with the workforce and the family and, you know, f- find that kind of balance. You know, I think, you know, a lot of uh, just in our social circles, a lot of the females in our group who are, who are young mums are, you know, having all sorts of really sort of creative thoughts around businesses to launch and things to run and, and launching really interesting businesses yeah. and concepts. So I think I think if that's something that comes out of this whole um process that that would be something to embrace and foster. And I mean it's and it's an interesting one because I know um 
you know, a, a lot of the analyses have centered around the fact that um, women have picked up even more of the slack mm. in the home. Uh, the, you know, the work hours for women have been reduced in a way that over-indexes, sadly, for mm. women. Mm. Um, and so that's what some of the data shows. Mm. But then at the same time, what I'm seeing anecdotally and what it sounds like you're seeing anecdotally is that, you know, women are starting up their own businesses. Mm. Women are actually, you know, when when the man gets involved in, mm. in, in those sort of, you know, stereotypical um, you know, family setups, mm. that it's actually liberating women as at the same time, mm. potentially. Mm. So I know just in our family, you know, the fact that I'm not traveling mm. 100 or 120 international travel days every Oof. year, you know, Nicole loves the fact that I can be around and actually do drop-offs and pickups. Mm. It allows her to have an eight-hour work day. I'm having a five-and-a-half-hour mm. work day today. And, mm. you know, we try and balance things, but that, that balance is actually enabling her mm. creatively and to really scale up her business. Mm. And I wonder, I know that's an anecdote, but I wonder if it could be true mm. for more mm. families mm. as... Because you just don't have that excuse anymore of like, mm. I'm in Melbourne tomorrow. I'm in mm. Dallas. I just mm. can't do this. Mm. We've got uh, friends up here who uh, where he used to work for, for AMP and is now with a different financial firm um, and works from home. Mm. Mm. Um, and the fact that he no longer has to go into, you know, circular key every day, mm. he's just able to well, there's no excuses for him mm, mm, for him not to do mm, some of the drop-offs mm, and pickups, for example, right? Yeah, I guess, I mean, what we're talking about is sort of the, um, you know, sort of professional sector. I guess there will be other sectors where, um, you know, uh, when the work's available, the, the sort of, you know, very often the, the male in that family needs to go and do that work and it could be in, you know, warehouses or, you know, factories and things like that, some of those other areas where maybe the financial pressure has been increased and that they do need to double down. And maybe that's where some of those stats are playing out um, that uh, women are picking up more of, more of the workload. But I certainly think that COVID has created a bit of a pause, a bit of a reshuffle, and hopefully we can hold on to some of yeah. like the, the positives um, that have yeah. come out of that, including and, reduced travel, which yeah. I don't know about you, but I haven't missed the, the yeah. level of travel. Well, I'm on my first <laughs> flight in 13 months tomorrow mm. uh spending the day down in in melbourne with l'oreal yes yeah. the that's the first uh first trip for a very long time and um and i, I to be honest like give, given the disruption i haven't missed it mm. and i've enjoyed this stillness you know mm. i haven't traveled more than two hours outside of sydney in mm. the last mm. 13 months and that that's very much a novelty for me um so I mean, pandemics and, and these social disruptions have had a sort of a historical tendency to, to lead to social mobility. Mm. And the name of this podcast is The Second Renaissance, right? And it, it alludes to the fact that, you know, the first renaissance was unleashed partly because of the pandemic of the Black Plague mm. uh, in, uh, in Florence and other parts of of the world, mm. you know, killed up to 50% of the population. Mm. 
Um, so despite the fact that, you know, in our family, we, you know, we've lost lives and livelihoods because of this pandemic, I would still choose this one over, oh, yeah. over previous ones. Um, and, but it unleashed, you know, an era of the likes of Michelangelo and, and Da Vinci and, and the flourishing of, you know, humanist thought, art, scientific thinking, etc. Um, but it also led to investments into labor-saving technologies. Mm-hmm. Because labor was scarce, mm. well, what happens when labor's in demand? Wages mm. go up. <clears throat> so people who were peasants could become mm. Artisans, artisans mm-hmm. became merchants, merchants mm-hmm. became new noblemen and women. Mm-hmm. And similarly, the Spanish flu led to the involvement of women in the workforce, just like the First World War did, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, but we also saw that leading to the suffragette movement mm-hmm. and the vote being mm-hmm. given rightfully mm-hmm and much overdue mm. to women. Mm. And so it'll be interesting to to observe, um, and it must be very odd to listen to two white males mm. talk about this topic, mm. but it's going to be really interesting. And I'm very hopeful that um, that the pandemic and, and also the sense of in some countries, we're lucky here in Australia, that we've almost had a, a sense of a, a, a universal basic income mm. where maybe families have been able to to take stock and, and, and rethink mm. how how duties and and the economics of the family kind mm. of work mm. i don't know if you've got mm. any thoughts on that after that yeah well i think quick 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 history lesson. yeah well, which i enjoyed <laughs> thank you um yeah i think i mean i think the idea of a um, renaissance being like a you know a, a, a rebirth a, a cultural reset i think that that's a super interesting thought and it works at kind of macro levels and and micro levels and I guess a sort of, you know, we we're touching on that a little bit earlier on, but just the idea that there are from this pause that happened in 2020, um, some opportunities that come mm. out of that. And those opportunities might be uh, in, in, you know, in the home, they might be um, in the way that we travel for work um, <clears throat> or travel personally as well. Um, or they might be, you know, on the business front, you know, certainly the retail front, there's interesting things happening there. Um, but yeah, I think the idea of a, a bit of a rebirth and a rethink and a reset is, is an interesting one. And, um, we won't have a better catalyst than what we just had. So it is interesting. I think these sorts of conversations, I think are good because it allows you to kind of bring it to the forefront and consciously think about what do we want that reset to look like as a community, but then also as individuals and entrepreneurs and things like that, you know, what do we want that reset to look like, I think is is an interesting mm. thing. That's why I kind of ask you the question about have you missed the travel? You know, that's something I've been thinking about. Like, can we can we travel less? Can we use the technology more? Um, but there's flip sides to that, isn't there? In terms of technology, can be a little bit um, you know isolating or um, uh, a little bit cold. And so sometimes you can overcorrect there, and then actually bringing people together. You know, we need to remember to do that as well. But well, I think there's, I mean, there's massively or a massive amount of pent up demand to see people face to face again. And um, I just know with a with a first physical conference that I got to attend back in late February for for Di Jones at the International Convention Center in Sydney, I was almost like giddy. Yeah, that to I got, see people. got to actually yeah. for the first time again in like twelve months. The last job before that was in, was in Dallas, 
you know, in, in February 2020, uh, before borders closed, etc. And everyone was like, there was this energy mm. that people got to meet again. So I just imagine when like the music industry and the festival mm. industry, I think we're going to have like the dawn of this sort of roaring 20s mm. as, as people go mm. back and actually mm explore the physical world hopefully safely again and i think it's a huge opportunity for for retail and i think there will be a sense of a you know a retail renaissance um we were doing at the end of last year some work with with australia post and i i know you do a lot of work with with nora Mm. uh, who are also a partner with with australia post um and uh the likes of paul greenberg i'm sure you've come Mm. across um and um, we were just looking at all these new categories that mm. were like exploding in popularity during mm. the pandemic, which I think also goes to, you know, a sense of creativity. Mm. Um, you know, obviously there's all the all the case studies of, you know, Australian, you know, liquor manufacturers and, you know, beer, beer breweries, et cetera, you know, switching and going, oh, we're also going to make hand sanitizer or, 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 or textile manufacturers going, oh, we're going to do a face mask. Mm. or whatever it happens to mm. be or somebody that 3d prints something rather than you know producing mm. a helmet for example mm. like a 3d printing a visor mm. um but i can also see that through the through the pandemic new categories are emerging so uh, for australia post mm. um, in this customer advisory council group that they have uh, which are the top online retailers some of which you work with mm. um like the iconic, for example, um, new categories are emerging as as just growing exponentially. So mm-hmm. one is adult toys mm-hmm. boomed during mm-hmm. the pandemic. Mm-hmm. At the same time, we've also seen like condom sales going down mm-hmm. during the pandemic. Mm-hmm. But as soon as people come out of lockdown, condom sales boom again. Mm-hmm. This is a very, you know, <laughs> parental advisory yeah, sort of yeah, podcast yeah. <laughs> today um but it's interesting just to see like as as there's quarantine or, or creativity um within constraints actually emerge and people shift and spend you know very quickly sort of adapt and i'm just i'm curious if if you have any sort of sense of what you believe are, are categories you know beyond the home that you mm. think as as the economy opens up again, where do you think, you know, CEOs and creatives will invest their capital and, mm. and are there any new categories that we, mm. beyond adult toys, <laughs> that we that we need to be mindful of? Mm, that could boom. I mean, it's an interesting, yeah, super interesting question. It's a little bit, little bit crystal ball-y. Um, I think, yeah, we've talked about the home category with, um, we talked about the home category in the context of the home itself, but I think a lot of activities that happen in and around the home are important too to, to consider there, like, um, you know, exercising at home, boom category. There's, you know, like the Pelotons of the world that are making um, uh, sort of bringing global communities into your living room, for example, which I think is super interesting. There's this sort of democratization of elite information, like, um, you know, Chris Hemsworth's uh, team have launched a uh, online sort of health world encompassing um, diet and exercise, and you know, all this stuff can just get streamed into your mm-hmm. home, and you can you don't need to go to a you know fitness first type environment um, anymore. So I think 
Um, the health and fitness around the home will be interesting. Yeah. I think entertainment in the home is is an absolute game changer. The, the model around kind of Hollywood producing films and then being screened in cinemas around the world, I think has been massively disrupted during COVID mm. and is sort of unlikely to return how, how it once was. So obviously cinemas were impacted by that being a space where groups of people come together um, in one environment, which was a, a little um, daunting for a lot of people. But that's had a reverse flow on the way Hollywood produces and uh, produces their films in that they rely on box office sales. So they held a lot of their movies back, for example. But then flip that into what that means for at-home entertainment with the likes of Netflix and Amazon Prime who have a more sort of vertical model. They're producing the content. They own the distribution of that content. So direct uh, relationship with customers. Um, I think it'll be hard for the entertainment industry to recover from that. Um, I think that 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 when cinemas open up and Hollywood lets the content flow through again, I think people will kind of, you know, look at those prices. They're going, well, look, we've just bought new screens and new surround sound from JB Hi-Fi. We've got our Netflix, Disney, Stan, uh, you know, like we've paying all this money for those. So I think the return there will be interesting. And then that has really interesting knock-on effects for all the downstream industries, like the, the landlords that have, like Westfields of the world who have built these amazing entertainment precincts which revolve around a cinema and then have all the dining mm. options and socialising options around that. I think that will be um, a huge disruption. And in retail, we talk a lot about the importance of verticality where you've got manufacturer brands like Nike, for example, manufacturing and then going direct to retail with their own stores. You've got retailers who then go direct to China and do their direct sourcing. So verticality has created um, a lot of sort of financial buffer throughout this. But to think about the importance of that in entertainment, I think is super mm. interesting. And I think that could be a massive disruption that maybe the traditional channels will find it very hard to recover from and could be like systemic in terms of what the real estate uh, owners do with their investments. Uh, it's a fascinating just to, to, to consider that sort of collateral damage mm. and disruption, right? Um, and there's, there's another historical precedent or, or analog to that, and that <clears> is um, what again happened during the Spanish flu in, in, yeah. in, in New York. And what we saw there was that most pre-pandemic, pre-Spanish flu, most of the cinemas were owned by mom and pops. So they were mom yeah. and pop affairs. Yeah. And there was a uh, Hungarian immigrant to the United States who'd made a little bit of a fortune in, in the rag trade. And uh, he had bought the rights to one movie. Yeah. And then he saw an opportunity to actually start vertically integrating. Mm -hmm. So everything from content production to distribution to then buying up at the time the only place people could watch the entertainment, which was in cinemas. Yeah. And so cinemas in, uh, in New York and in America very, very quickly became not a mom and pop affair, mm. but something that was managed by, by uh, corporations. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And he became super successful by really doubling down on cinemas and vertically integrating entertainment through, mm. through that period in time. So mm -hmm. I think, you know, pandemics can definitely shift, you know, even, you know, the you know the physicality mm. of 
how a shopping centre or mm. even an urban centre, mm. you know, end up looking just mm. by, you know, the digital disintermediation or the vertical integration mm. of, of business models. And as you point out, you know, shopping centres might look entirely different. Yeah, and when it gets to that stage, it becomes more permanent. Mm. You know, when when the, the, the property owners are literally changing the way they arrange their bricks and mortar, it's hard to come back from that. It's so expensive. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, we do change, you know, the physical surroundings based upon what seems like a, a better idea for the future. So, mm. you know, again, pre-Spanish flu, mm. spittoons were a thing. Mm. You know, mm. every restaurant you'd go into, every bar you'd go into, mm. there was a good little mm. spittoon for mm. you to... Mm spit into what a waste um you know what a you know that was like a form of customer service yeah, customer right. experience yeah. back in the day yeah um and then they realized that maybe that wasn't such a smart idea in yeah term, in terms of spreading some germs that. around can i so, tell you i am a, a low confidence spitter yeah spittoons freak me out yeah i'm always worried you're just gonna get a little bit of <laughs> I, we don't have that many, many spittoons left anymore i mean i think the closest thing is probably probably a urinal uh, yeah so we're just lowering, lowering the intellectual <laughs> rigor of this conversation as we go. I'm, I'm curious. I mean, things that, you know, may no longer be. So we've talked about spittoons. Um, you know, you've alluded to shopping centers potentially mm, changing, changing as, yeah. as maybe the cinemas won't be the central kind of focus yeah. area. Who do you see as being kind of like the winners and, and the losers mm. out of this? Like what investments should someone be thinking about? Mm. What are sort of old legacy retail thinking mm. that mm. might hamper someone from creating success in the roaring 20s? Yeah, yeah, the roaring 20s, very good. Um, I think um, there's, there's like a couple of ways you could think about answering that question, I suppose. There's like specific executional things. Um, you know, you can sort of say digital be up, technology be up, things like that. But I think that's sort of a risky way to answer the question. I think that um, what I observed in 2020 was this increased appetite for change and for, for risk and that people realised that it's risky not to change. Um, and I think going forward, that sort of adaptability will be a really defining thing. I think the, the rate of change and innovation particularly in retail, will uh, increase. And particularly after the year, we've just had people way more confident with making some of those big decisions and bigger investments and have found that it's not as scary as we thought it would be. Um, so I think sort of, I guess, culturally, the um, exec teams that are slow to move, slow to test, um, I think they're the ones that will struggle. So that's part one. Part two, I think there is a thing around real estate, which is, a significant issue in Australia. Um, it's an issue in other parts of the world as, as well, like America, where we're kind of, that's a very overstored market, too many stores. Um, you know, I think that the sort of generation of retailers before our generation, if you like, was very big on growth through building a store network because it was all about in those days, um, efficiency through scale. So if you could get your store network from from 20 stores to 60 stores, you had a huge advantage on the people that you left behind, let alone if you could get to 200 or 300 stores. You just had a cost efficiency advantage. But that led to a lot of, I think, poor real estate decisions that people just doubled down on. Mm. And I think now 
Um, a lot of retailers are stuck with store networks that are much too big. Um, stores that are much too big um, within those networks as well. Um, and I think another interesting side effect of the pandemic was, you know, a lot of retailers shut their entire networks. And then when they open them, they open them gradually. So they open their top 40 stores first and then their next 40 and then their next 40. And they could just see the benefit to the bottom line of having a high performing network, not just a big mm -hmm. network. So the flow on effect for that, again, comes back to the, the property owners, the shopping centers and whatnot, that I think they've been a very powerful force in Australian retail um, for the last 20, 40 years or whatever. But I think there is something of a reckoning coming for the, for the real estate side of retail that Australia has some of the most expensive retail real estate in the world. I think that'll get corrected as sort of retail uh, chains adjust their distribution. Um, and I think that'll have a huge impact. So I think to answer your question, I think um, the real estate owners have got um, a challenge coming up. Um, and then the first answer, part of my answer was I think the low innovation, low adaptability retailers um, have got a challenge coming up. So I know when when uh, there was a discussion between you know landlords and, and and tenants that you know there was even there was even talk at one stage at a pretty senior level in some of the some of the national retailers associations etc yeah. and, and and some of the other you know representative and also lobbying groups that some landlords were saying that hey yes you want a reduction in rent but do you realize how much your physical footprint is driving your online digital sales or even um the fact that your showrooming here mm. is driving you know your global digital distribution of goods mm. and you might even be fulfilling you might be using your store as a as a fulfillment center um what are your thoughts on on that? Is that is that like a fair comment? And and some some landlords were also saying, hey, we want a cut of that. Yeah, yeah. Digital sales because of the showroom. Like, is there merit to that, or how is that backward it's, thinking it's a, or forward thinking? What do you think? It's a great argument. Um, it is a good argument, but it's an argument from a a, a group with a vested interest in that argument. So mm -hmm. I think they're taking a very one sided view of that ar argument. The reality of rents in Australia is that they're disproportionately high um, in this country. So they're making a defensive play there, um, but there's room for you know the rents to be adjusted. I mean, Australian property is very expensive, so there is that argument as well. But yeah, sort of the, the rents in Australia are very high. I think that has a pretty significant impact on the opportunity for innovation in retail in Australia. Um, because if you're opening a store, it's got to work. There's, there's a threshold you've got to get over. You know, cities like Berlin that have incredibly low rents and low property prices drive incredibly high innovation because young creative people can get in the market and take a few risks and you end up with phenomenal concepts being born over there. Um, I, always, I often look to um, Brisbane and Queensland for, for retail innovation in Australia because the rents are lower and there are a lot of small concepts happening up there which are interesting. But personally, I would like to see rents come yeah. down a bit because it will free retailers up to innovate more, generate more revenue for the, for the broader community and I think there'll be some benefit from that. 
So rents are disproportionate. Mm. Yeah. But maybe, yeah. Yeah. Cool. Please take note of landlords. Yeah. yeah. Um, so the other the other aspect of this, and, and you're kind of alluding there to to what uh, Richard Florida in his in his writings on the creative class that I'm sure sure you're uh, attuned to, you know, he talks about that exact idea that you know creatives, um, you know, original thinkers, misfits tend to kind of move into urban areas yeah. that. Um, have lower rent and so the artists would move into an area redfern surrey hills mm. um then the creatives then the designers um and over time all of a sudden you have the coolest stores in those mm. areas mm. and all the yuppies move in and gentrify yeah. it yeah um what do you what do you see with with COVID? given this sort of you know we've been untethered from say that mm. you know the cbds of the world and even you know, I used to live in Surrey Hills. I'm kind of curious, like, you know, are the rents there? Are they artificially high now that Surrey yeah. Hills has become gentrified here in Sydney? Yeah. Um, or where are the, you know, where are the next areas where where retail innovation might happen? Is it is it back in sort of, you know, the Avalon villages of the world where, mm. you know, creative brands are kind of going, actually, I don't know that we need to be in the CBD or near the CBD. Yeah. But is it in these sort of peripheries that yeah. you can... Well, I can I can answer this question because we recently looked at moving our offices and looking at different sort of rental opportunities. Uh, our office is in Surrey Hills, so City Fringe in Sydney, um, and it is some of the most expensive commercial real estate in the country. Um, so that narrative that you just explained played out a hundred percent. So add to that in COVID, then this great sort of decentralisation of the workforce and of people. So everyone sort of left the CBD and I was joking with my colleagues just this morning saying that the best rental deals at the moment are in the CBD because it's almost like the CBD has become the Surrey Hills fringe, you know, so it's kind of this reversals happened. Um, And, you know, we know a lot of the same kind of entrepreneurial community and I know a lot of entrepreneurs are finding great cheap real estate in the CBD. Um, So, yeah, I think there's this great flip that's happening, but what does that mean going forward? So at the moment, we've got the sort of suburban renaissance happening and the regional renaissance happening. Mm. Absolutely brilliant. But I would absolutely put money on that there will be a counter swing to mm. that. I think mm. the CBD will come back in a big way, um, that there'll be lots of entrepreneurialism, lots of low-cost real estate available, some really creative things happening there, um, and that'll suck kind of people back in yep. you just hope that those sort of regional and suburban areas hold on to a lot of it i think they will because there'll be some really exciting things that happen out there but mm. i think it's in our interest to have a less centralized population yeah particularly in australia where we're sort of very sort yeah of even you know from a traffic perspective or or having this idea that you know there might be several sort of city centers or a polycentric city yeah you know even lucy turnbull's talked about that from from a sydney perspective but you know even for our global audience Mm. that's relevant so her her Mm. vision was to have you know three cbds or central business districts Mm. as we call it in sydney so that you wouldn't have to ever commute more Mm. than 30 minutes and Mm. i think that that idea of polycentricity um is an idea that's been adopted in chicago and other other places around the world Mm. and executed upon better or worse Mm. um but i'm absolutely a believer as well that you know long term you know the city center is always Mm. the city center or the polycentric city centers yeah 
uh, are always going to be attractive for talent. But I think maybe this sort of like disruption had to happen to yeah. actually do be a little bit of a sort of year zero mm. for landlords to reassess what is realistic. Mm. Uh, and also maybe to see a, create, a new creative class move into and filling mm. up some of that real estate. I mean, in Sydney, again, you know, Westpac has subleased or vacated 25% of their Barangaroo real estate. Wow. So you're just going, okay, that's, you know, a quarter of their space in mm. the CBD. What's going to what happen What are they going to do with yeah. it? That's a problem to solve. Yeah, yeah, brilliant. And those problems are where you get great creative answers. Yeah. So, yeah, that will be interesting. The other thing I'm, I'm curious, I mean, just... To, to find out a little bit about you as a, as a strategist and, and why you do what you do yeah. um, is this concept of what I'm seeing at least, and you alluded to it before with some of the kind of emerging concepts that might do well out mm. of the pandemic and mm. as we sort of, you know, hopefully speed out of the mm. curve. Mm. You talked about a little bit about, you know, health and, and wellness and mm the the Hemsworth apps and the, the mm. you know their fitness worlds etc is that I'm seeing that brands like Nike and and Lululemon brands that are part of what I call the transformation economy mm -hmm. they really invest into not the sort of bio persona or the buyer persona of an individual that's quite set but they're like a little bit like Michelle Obama's you know, it's not about who you're being, but it's who you're becoming. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's nice. Yeah. And so they're really kind of backing who, who does this consumer aspire to become mm. on their journey of self-actualization and getting up Maslow's needs hierarchy. Mm. How do we really sort of partner with them yeah. so that we don't just sell them a piece of hardware, but we really invest with them mm. to enable their their journey mm. uh, do you see any other brands who are sort of participating in that from a sort of a purpose perspective or mm. Mm. even in terms of how they're designing their you know collections and their offerings mm. products and services there is definitely a lot happening in this space um both in australia and globally um my view on this space, though, is it's yeah highly being being driven by manufacturer brands like Nike, for example, um, like you know all the the technology and tracking apps of which there are now quite a few people like Peloton, etc. Um, so yeah, there's there's an awful lot happening in this world, and um, but it's it's very much driven by some sort of specific product that's driving it, and not so much by, you know, the kind of broader consumer need of making sense of this world. Mm. So, you know, there's a lot of new information out there around, you know, um, you know, diet and nutrition. There's a lot of new options around physical exercise and how to approach it. Um, a lot of new information around like sleep and recovery. Um, and I think it's a, you know, something that consumers are jumping all over um and so there's a lot of money in that area there's a lot of therefore innovation and exciting things happening um but it's not an easy category to make sense of because mm. it's also like a lot of fads in that category so um and it's also a high dollar item category so it's a tricky category um to navigate 
Um, but um, yeah, I think it's a it's a very very interesting one, and um, yeah, a lot of potential. You know, things for example that used to be incredibly niche, like meditation, are now incredibly broadly accepted. I think there's a lot of those sort of Eastern philosophies being well embraced now by the, by Western cultures, which is um, which is sort of uh, a part of that mm. journey. Which With the backing cool. of science as well. I think exactly, uh, it's yeah. not just, I think people have realized and become a bit more both scientific and, and hopefully data scientific, including, you know, some institutions, you know, including religious institutions yeah. that we wouldn't normally think yeah. of as science, strictly scientific, yeah. Yeah. Uh, are enforcing very scientific measures of, yeah. you know, social distancing and maybe no singing in, yeah. in, yeah. in a religious institution or, um, or certain maybe un, unhygienic um, um, behaviors that previously would have been part mm. of, 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 of ritual. Mm. Mm. Um, a good, a and, good, a good yeah. example, sorry to jump in there, but a good example is kind of like you think of the way that we, in the 90s, we all loved following Michael Jordan, right? We would watch Michael Jordan get out on the court, be an absolute weapon. He'd come off, smoke a cigar, and, you know, maybe you see him do some stretches before the thing. You know, that was about it. Now, if you follow, like, LeBron James, you see him um, doing his physical exercise. You see what his recovery routine looks like. Um, you see what his sleep routine looks like. You see what his diet and supplement regime looks like. He talks about meditation. You know, the world around performance broadly has changed so much. Mm. And, and I think a, a, a big part of it is visibility into people's worlds now. You know, now we know what the, uh, the coaches of elite teams are teaching their, their, um, their teams to do. And we can access parts of that on our sort of transformational journey, which, you know, depending on what inspires you, whether it's basketball um, or golf or whether it's meditation or, you know, that the mm. blurring of all those worlds is getting more and more blurred. Yeah. Well, it's, I mean, and then the, the kind of options for us to, to biohack, model, mirror, and mm. then of course through our aura rings or mm. our smart watches, we're yeah. able to, to monitor every part of our, of our lives mm -hmm. in a way that becomes meaningful, hopefully, you know, measurable. We can know whether we're making progress mm -hmm. to, mm -hmm. you know, running the marathon or uh, mm -hmm. maybe in my forties becoming an NBA star. You know, <laughs> this is uh, so, yeah. So I think, you know, that notion of transformation, uh, wellness, the wellness economy is nearly a $5 trillion industry mm -hmm. at present. And I think as as people have become a lot more health conscious and 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 science based in their thinking around the virus, mm. um, I think the wellness economy is going to be one that um, is going to boom out of the gates as well. Yeah, um, it's interesting because it's very big but very fragmented, mm. and that's always an interesting uh, market dynamic. I think that sort of talks to opportunities to help customers make sense of that world. Yeah, because it's, you know, as, as you said, there's, you know, there's not a single sort of dashboard that links in mm. via APIs, you know, the, the supplements you've been taking, the sleep, mm. you know, mm. regimen or the, the sleep mm. you actually got last night and mm. then, you know, the diet shakes, et cetera. Mm. Um, mm. So there's a real 
kind of retail opportunity mm, here. Mm, exactly. Nike or <laughs> Under Armour or whatever yeah, it happens yeah. happens to be. Exactly. So on this topic of you know of self-actualization, transformation, I want to kind of tune into what drives you, like what right. makes you passionate about retail specifically. Um, what like what what inside mm. you gets you so excited about having you know, helping retail brands be the best version of yeah, themselves. Yeah, um, the, the I think my sort of personal kind of superpower, if you like, is I like walking in on things that are complicated and making them simple. That's my great joy in life. Even when I get home, my wife will tell you that I come home and the first thing I do is say hello to the family and then I just start cleaning. You know, I just want everything sort of neatly tied up in a bow kind of thing. Mm. I love retail because retail businesses are incredibly complex. Um, you know, they they just need so many problems solved, whether it's, you know, product ranging problems or it's, um, you know, store or in-store or customer experience challenges, whether it's positioning in the market in a way that advertising might solve that component or, you know, I think that's the thing that drives me to the, to retail is that there's just so much going on with it and so many requirements um, that it makes it sort of a very dynamic, very interesting place to be. I think also you're very close to the customer in retail. I know a lot of manufacturer brands get quite frustrated because they'll develop a product, they'll launch it through their retail channels, and then they'll get pretty low visibility on what's working and mm. what's not working. So they're that world relies a lot more on just technique and sort of macro learnings to navigate their world. Whereas in retail, you, you get to use the technique. Like a lot of marketing technique was actually born out of FMCG land, like Unilever and Procter & Gamble are kind of the godfathers of modern marketing. Um, so the retailers can kind of learn that big technique, but then they can apply it quickly and get results really quickly. So I feel like it's a bit more like real world application and you can get some, a, a much, you can learn more quickly, mm. basically working with retailers. Now, weirdly, we, we specialize in working with retailers, but a lot of um, consumer good brands and manufacturer brands come to us because we've got a good understanding of the retail world. And there are awesome benefits of, in some ways, it's liberating being free of all that influx of information that comes in so quickly. You can make bigger, longer term decisions. Mm. So there are benefits both ways, but um, yeah, I think the thing that drives me is just problem solving. Mm. I love messy situations and coming in and, you know, being in a boardroom and everyone goes, oh, now I get it. I know exactly what we need to do. And I find there's something almost like Zen or quite calming mm. when someone has kind of solved that piece and mm. the, the, you know, the Tetris puzzle or mm. whatever and just goes, yeah, yeah, it feels good. And there's like a signal in the noise. Yeah. What if, someone cuts through, which I guess as a brand strategist, this is kind of one of the things you do. That is a magic ingredient, I think. You want a team of people to be able to work out how to get rid of all the buzz and the noise, to have that clarity so that then you can think about some big ideas and know exactly where to put your effort. Because the nature of the general store, like we, we have the strategy component and then the creative component, and by virtue of those two disciplines, you've got these kind of conflicting forces within our own business where strategy is all about simplification, like taking complex 
situations and distilling it down to a, a simple uh, set of priorities or simple set of ideas. And then the creative process is the opposite. It's very divergent thinking. Now, what can we do with it? But you can't get a quality creative process unless you've got space and clarity and simplicity first. So I kind of see that as our big job set up that opportunity. And whether it's us doing the creative thinking or the retailer doing the creative thinking off the back, doesn't really matter as long as you get to get the team to a point where you've got that clarity and that focus, then I think big, exciting things are possible mm. from there. Yeah. We, um, we collaborated last year with, with Microsoft and their retail division on a white paper on artificial intelligence mm. being deployed by retailers, uh, specifically Australian examples of AI deployment to sort of help with customer experience, solving customer problems, but also to really set um, their humans free mm. to do more creative, more meaningful work while the technology was looking after the menial mm -hmm. and the mundane so mm. we could focus more on the humane as, mm. as humans. Mm. Um, and... Uh, and that white paper, that, that trend report, I think taps into this concept of what you were referring to, which is in retail, you can have the finger on the pulse, mm. both through human interaction, but also through um, data centricity and, mm -hmm. and knowing how the customer journey is, is flowing through. Have you seen some examples of retailers you've worked with where where either artificial intelligence or the technology um, machine learning tech systems is really setting humans free to actually mm. <laughs> engage in this sort of retail renaissance and getting back to mm. you know that human centered problem solving mm. that it sounds like you're, you're quite passionate mm. about is there anything that sort of comes to mind there well what what i've seen has been less about freeing up um team members um it's been more about sort of serving up relevant um, options to customers. I've seen it used there. I think retailers hear AI and, and think, oh God, this sounds like a big investment and it's difficult and it's the future and I'm focused on next week's sales. Um, but actually I've seen some pretty simple deployments of AI be used and it doesn't need to be a sort of big intimidating uh, process. But the notion, I mean, I do like some of the things that are happening in, in AI and there's a great opportunity there because I think what I love about it is it's technology that you don't see. And I think that's where, in my mind, to the extent that technology has been successful, it's when we haven't noticed it. Um, and where it's been unsuccessful is where you do notice it, where someone puts a, a screen or an endless aisle and the poor customer has to navigate this hideous thing on their own and, you know, it's an uncomfortable experience, you know. So, yeah, I think AI plays into that invisible tech thing quite well. So I'm, I'm quite pro, you know, people exploring that further. But I really like your notion that AI can take care of the mundane, but also the volume so that um, actual humans can go deep on more one-on-one -on -one experience and serving customers better, that, that team members can be, you know, better informed than customers, which is a real challenge that retailers have to face, that customers are coming in better informed than their own people. So um, AI and technology to augment 
the human experience in stores, I think is, is an amazing opportunity. Yeah. Yeah. What did, what did you learn from, you know, do you see any kind of key applications there for retail? Well, I mean, we, we actually, we case studied and, and looked at what um, some of your clients, including uh, the iconic were doing in terms of uh, replenishment in terms of looking at um, artificial intelligence to determine consumer intent mm -hmm. and uh, based on customer behaviors, for example, um, how likely was it that someone had just been shopping, you know, several sizes mm -hmm. to, you know, return three out of four, for example, mm -hmm. to kind of help with their stock optimization that, you know, that was one example we, we found through, through our interviews. Mm -hmm. Uh, together with Microsoft and and uh, some of these Aussie mm. brands, uh, another example was Harvey Norman, mm -hmm. who were using a, a chat bot mm -hmm. uh, to handle sort of frequently asked questions, mm -hmm. but it helped reduce call volumes mm -hmm. by by I think something like thirty percent. We'll have to have this in the mm -hmm. show notes, and mm -hmm. it also improved their CSAT or customer satisfaction mm -hmm. scores quite significantly because. You know the humans could spend less time mm. on these frequently asked mm. questions mm. and they could actually deploy their their humanity mm. and their customer centricity in in, mm. a, in a fundamentally different and and, and human centric mm. fashion as opposed to dealing with rote and, and volume yeah um so there are a couple of examples mm. um i also know that there are retailers who are using things like uh, like fruit of the loom for example uh, using metrology data, mm. uh, which helps them know what the customer intent mm. is going to be based mm. upon a significant drop in temperature mm. in the United States mm. so that they can really push, say, you know, fleece or a thicker jumper mm. those weekends. And it's not actually the actual drop in temperature mm. that affects sales, but it's just, if someone's heard it in the news, mm -hmm. oh, then customer intent shifts and they're more likely to buy some of the thicker garments, for mm -hmm. example. Mm -hmm. So I think these are all these are all interesting, and I, I, you know they lead me to the, the conclusion that we can only really claim to be sort of customer centric brands if mm -hmm. we are extremely data centric. Mm -hmm. That we can be more humane mm. because of the technology mm, mm. we're nearly into the the end zone here today mm. and thank you for all your contributions so far mm. i'm curious as a you know as a as a retail i was going to say retail nut but that's not <laughs> quite the, the right terminology as a retail philosopher maybe sure. i'm curious what's the best you know your most human-centric customer experience or customer journey mm you've had and do you think that there's some magic technology in the background that might have mm. potentially enabled it oh gosh well i don't know about the technology um side of it but you know for me the most magical sort of customer experiences that i've personally had are actually like the most human ones um whether it's um you know, we just got our coffees down the laneway before we started here and the, the wonderful customer service there, the banter, the making fun of you for having a triple shot in that cup. Jesus. That's why uh, I'm buzzing. <laughs> um, you know, the banter that follows that. Um, I've always been a massive fan of the brand T2. T2 um, as a concept should never have worked. It should never have worked. You know, if somebody came to you and said, 
I want to start a retail concept selling really expensive tea and beautiful packaging to Australia. You go, don't do it. But there was just something about the level of passion and artistry to which they executed that concept that it was so attractive and so alluring that it made great gifting and kind of people were happy to kind of pay that price. And I think that to me is what matters, those incredibly inspiring human experiences, experiences which I think if you then, you know, we're talking about particularly the coffee, a experience that's hard to scale. That's where technology can play the role. Technology can play the role to help you scale some of those beautiful human experiences. I think when this conversation flips into, isn't technology wonderful and we should get more technology in front of customers? I think that's where the conversation gets quite flawed around tech. Um, but where it's sitting in the background, augmenting human experiences, that's where I think it's exciting and interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and and on that, just to kind of augment and scale that conversation, what do you think retail brands need to consider in terms of training or retraining or reskilling their sales associates or their teams for this age when people not just shop online, mm. Mm. but actually go back into the physical world? What do you, what do you think are the sort of, skills that need to be enhanced and augmented for, for the humans or so, you know, that represent these yeah, brands? It's a great question because I think there is a transition happening here. Retailers um, of the past succeeded because they could get this unit from China into Australia and on a shelf cheaper than anybody else. That's the old sort of school method there. Online has disrupted that massively because onlineers can do it cheaper than physical stores um but not necessarily quicker so so read so brick and mortar retailers rely on come and grab it right now and you can get out the door but team members are a massive competitive advantage for all retailers whether it's sort of physical retailers or online retailers but i think the, the team member the service component is a huge opportunity we've seen it with the genius bar at, at apple as probably best in class um, we've seen it with brands like Super Cheap Auto, for example, who have flipped their thinking from just selling products to let's, you know, when I'm not just going to sell you the windscreen wiper, I'll help you put it on the car. And that'll only cost $4, you know. So, you know, retailers can make money out of it. They just need to reframe their thinking away from the old school thing of moving units around the world to the kind of broader customer experience mm. that people are wanting. So I think the human component here is is a huge opportunity yeah so it's not just the physical hardware it's also the you know the the software and, and the human experience and i guess back to your point mm. it's actually not just you know the thing that will solve the mm. problem back to your passions mm. right mm. your your ikigai as the japanese from mm. okigawa mm. Would, yeah. would call it like the you know reason for being yeah. um but it's actually going, okay, well, that's the product, but what can you charge for the service yeah. that contextualizes and makes yeah. sense of yeah. the windscreen wiper? Yeah, and, you know, salad wages in Australia are quite high, so you either need to build it into the, the, the price of the unit, which is what Apple do, um, or charge separately for it, which is what Super Cheap Auto do. But mm. there's just a structural mindset shift that I think retail execs are still working through. But I, I'm glad that you raised it at the end there because I think it's 
a huge opportunity for competitive advantage that a lot of retailers aren't picking up on yet. Yeah, cool. So the future of the retail renaissance might not just be in the product, but also in the servitization around it. and The people, for sure, especially post-COVID. It's all about people coming together again, isn't it? Yeah, enabled by good technology in the yeah. background. Matt, thank you so much for hanging out on the second renaissance. and uh, Nice to come up and hang out in person. Yeah, yeah. and I look forward to that rain check lunch as well. Definitely. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Cheers.